0: also non-malicious attacks. And so one of the best things that we can do is talk things over with the Lord when the talk of people becomes the greater noise. We have to be mindful that we're always subject to the Lord. We are His subjects, meaning He will take care of us. But we just have to be very mindful that not everything that we hear or even imagine has anything at all to do with us being less in God's eyes than what we know his word has told us. He's, that's not the way he works. But there are disciplines, and that's actually one of the things in this chapter that's being spoken of, the discipline of speech, both in what you say and in what you also may hear but will not permit to have it influence you. So in 14, it says the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. And so we can tell that there is, in an individual, their pursuit of knowledge, that that's not a bad thing. There are a lot of things that we can pursue, but there seems to be a compliment that for him who has understanding, he is seeking knowledge. He's seeking knowledge. But we do know that in the very same book that we're looking at now, the passage you're familiar with is that the knowledge of the holy cannot be a more rigorous and at the same time divine pursuit than to understand God, the knowledge of the holy, the knowledge of the word of God, what God thinks about us, what he has secured us in, Um, you know, his, his endeavor is to protect us, and this is in the process of perfecting us, and we have to believe that. We have to believe that he is protecting us as he is perfecting us. And we're all going through that, right? There are some things that, for instance, we can't fully say, why now, why me? Didn't I already handle this five years ago, ten years ago? And, you know, one of the sequences in life is that God allows certain phases of it to repeat, almost like being on a track. And the bottom line is, in a track event, the one who tags that tape has had to take, if they're middle distance or long distance, they've had to take laps. The sprinters, they just have to make it down a straight, narrow pathway, maybe a hurdle or two in their way. They're still working very hard to get to the tape. But by and large, aside from being specialists, I think the Lord favors the middle distance and long distance runners in the faith because it requires a greater discipline. And in my opinion, an attitude that says, okay, I've been trained by God. I've been on this course before. I know what it's like to finish, and I know what it's like to finish stronger than I did before, therefore, I know that I will finish stronger than where I'm at now, that's one of the patterns, we finish stronger than where we're presently at now, and all it takes is hitting that tape and trusting the Lord for the next meet. And so with regard to this evaluation, when we're in pursuit of the things of God, which we are tonight, God looks at this as we might liken ourselves to athletes. And he says, you're doing a great job. Good for your soul. Good for the team. Good for you. And so I like that. My kids have become kind of researchers as perhaps some of your kids are. And things that are, in my opinion, just very impressive. Um, and they're good at finding things out. You know, we've, um, my kids have all of a sudden taken an interest in nutrition. Now, so, most of it, in fact, all what they are saying is good stuff. It's good stuff. It's just when it all of a sudden starts to look directly at me. <laughs> it's hard stuff. It's What? No sugar? No sugar. Well, God made sugar. That, that couldn't be on one of the no-no lists. <laughs> what? No carbs? Are you kidding me? So I didn't you know what I'm going through. Um, yes, you know what I'm going through. But, um, but what I found fascinating is that they are really trying to biblically anchor what they are in pursuit of. So that the wellness of their father is something that hopefully can last longer in their formative years. I understand that. So in these pictures right now, it's both being able to admire those who are in the pursuit of knowledge and their understanding of God, what he's desired to do. And all of us, I know that right now, we've been blessed by people who have given us godly counsel in the knowledge that they've received from the Lord in the things that pertain to us. And so let's move on. In contrast, it says, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. And so we have been dialed in to know what a fool's behavior looks like. And we also know that that person will not change until they are changed ultimately by the Lord. And that's a choice they have to make their endeavors will be foolishness i run into people that by choice behaved foolishly but it's interesting because they they keep they keep seeking me out and i believe they're seeking me out for a provision of some type from the church but it's going deeper because when some of the texts roll in they're questioning their life and the choices that they've made in life that have put them in the position that they are in right now. And so when I at times don't necessarily know how to evaluate it, you know, I'll look at John and who knows at times certain people better than I do and he'll help me evaluate. And but what I am saying is that there are those who both pursue foolishness and they are fools. But when they see us and when they see how God is blessing us, they actually are in pursuit of a change of heart and a change of lifestyle. And I'm hoping to see that one of those individuals comes in tomorrow because I think he's tired of what his choices have led him down, a very dark path and, in my opinion, a very harsh living condition. I'm hoping to see him tomorrow that the foolishness he just resigns from and the knowledge of the holy he becomes a pursuer of. The fool, though, just feeds on foolishness and it is sorrowful because of what it does to them. In verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. One of the difficulties in this passage is that there are people that are genuinely afflicted. All the days of the afflicted are evil. It was not unusual for these to be penned in what we would say almost an ecclesiastical manner. In other words, what Solomon had penned in some of his most profound writings were evaluating in his discoveries, the vanities of life, saying he tried this, he did that, he went after that, and it led to nothing. And so I have to believe that in this, it's not the godly afflicted, because the godly will be afflicted, and they don't levy every incident as of all evil, as if evil is overwhelming God, or if evil can overwhelm us. So I do believe this is one of those kinds of things in which the reflection is a person that without the Lord perceives that all affliction is evil as opposed to God's design to provoke an individual that in their affliction they need him he's ready to answer them most of us have drawn close to the Lord not because of how easier life has been but because of how difficult it has been. We've found ourselves on our knees. It's called humbling yourself time and time again. How many times do I have to do this? It just depends. It's God's prerogative by how often or frequency he permits the things that we would say are afflictions to happen. And we don't understand, you know, why them or why me? I just got out of the last one. Why am I in another one? Sometimes it may be better to say a compliment to you for the character that God sees in you and that he's developing in the hardship of your affliction. I was known in a season down in Mexico, which I laugh at to this day, as the most afflicted man on the face of the earth. I don't know how I got that title, but I was. There were those who perceived me as the most (laughs) afflicted man at the mission. What they were seeing was the Lord putting me through interesting crises. But what I know they saw more importantly than that was the cross that I was showing them. I laugh only because I think I've seen others in greater crises than what I was in. But it was down there in that season where it was with rapidity. I'd finish one thing and move into another thing and another thing. I didn't break any bones, but I definitely had displacement of body parts. I had very interesting afflictions. And one of the things that I was choosing to do down there is not, per se, rely on any resource but God to get me out of it. I also had to learn at times that the resource that in fact God was using to get me out of it was from someone, and I had to learn the balance of when to receive and when to stay the course and simply trust him. But I do believe here when we talk about the the affliction of people and their assumption is that it's all evil, that's not true. We live in a fallen world, but not all in this fallen world can be titled as evil. And so when you look at this contrast, it then comes back and it says, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And so this again is that, in my opinion, the contrast says, so what am I going to choose to do with my heart right now in my affliction? And this seems to indicate that it is a merry heart that God will give us in the discipline of rightfully evaluating our situation. I can be a bemoaner and one who's choosing to make that how people identify with me, or I can say I'm limping into church, but I'm going to be laughing in the church. I'm going to be hanging my head because it's heavy, but I've got two arms that can prop them up if necessary. And that choice is just an important part of our discipline. And it seems that, you know, during the course of simply an average day, we have this confrontation fairly consistently. And I think the Lord's just saying, <clears throat> make up your mind. To make a difference in the circumstance by not dwelling on it, dwell on me. Dwell on me, because in so doing, your heart will become merry. And if I can if I can use that word as a homonym and say it becomes a merry heart, an M A R Y heart, a heart that in that moment chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus. You just stop and you choose to sit at the feet of Jesus. You speak things that he is worthy of hearing. Praise to him for what he's done. Thanksgiving as well for what you've received. In this little girl that fell from her bunk, I was just kind of like, wow. We, the guys, we were talking about, well, we got to get bunks up in the, in the D house. And now I'm going, bunks, they're bunkies. They could get hurt. But I'm going, no we had bunks at our place and we lived that was an incident that became an accident and in the communique that i had with the mom i chose to believe i could speak with christy words of encouragement we are praying for you we love your family jesus has got you And so the reciprocation of that was, thank you. This means so much. We allowed our hearts to be kept in a good place because you're speaking good in a difficult circumstance. And the girl is coming through. She's coming out of it. And that's a wonderful thing right now because in a time in which sadness can prevail, find the reason in which we can say God is worthy of a merry heart, a heart of devotion. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord, 16 great counsel. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. I was reviewing the life of a a man that... um, I remember how he influenced me. His name was Dan Peake. And he was one of the main singers and songwriters in a group called America, which was a big band when in the 70s I was growing up. They were a folk rock band, and they had a lot of catchy tunes, and some of them were just like a horse with a name. I still don't get a horse with no name. I had a horse and it had its name. It was an Appaloosa, and it was Shin Sapphire. But whatever they were singing about, I have no idea what they were smoking or token, But I know that was their generation. But his history, his name is Dan Peake, and he's with the Lord now. And that's the cool thing that I'm trying to share with you, is that he had treasuries beyond anything that would have ever said he lacked one thing. And his testimony was that it meant nothing to him that in his Malibu beach house, a $1 million mansion, he cried out to the Lord saying, nothing satisfies me. I don't want anything but you. He had roots in faith, but he left them. He said, by free will, I left my Christian heritage. And when fame came, I grabbed everything that I could. And there was nothing that that I wanted that I could not possess. I had that much money, that much fame. But like Solomon at the end of his, if you would, expenditures, he was just saying, I am a mess, an unsatisfied mess. And I'm messing up people's lives by what I've become. So I remember clearly the transition because I was at my brother's house and back then they had albums and I see this guy smiling and it's Dan Peak on his album, and it's a Christian it's his first album he put out. It's a Christian album. But I see this guy smiling, and it, it just drew me to the album jacket, and then I flipped it over, and it was this guy running down the beach with just this big I think he, they caught him mid too. just just classic. And it intrigued me. And as I read him going, "Huh? That guy, that guy was in America?" And he gave up America for Christian music. And then I listened to some of his songs and I'm going, huh, that's good. But then again, I put his album back in the jacket and I put his album behind other albums that for me in my life, I was still in pursuit of. Well, getting back to his story, as he was on his knees saying, Lord, I only want you. The Lord granted him his wish because there was a fire that blew in from the eastern side and Malibu burned up. Most of the homes on that area, that wealthy area, you might remember the Malibu fires, his, he, lost his, he lost everything. And so this guy interviewing said, what did that do to you? Liberated me. Liberated me. Yeah, there was everything that went up. It went up. And I lost it all. But you know what I didn't lose? I didn't lose my faith. I didn't lose God. My marriage was just blossoming. And I had a reason to sing other songs. And so it was a cool testimony. He passed away about 11, mm, about eight years ago, I think. No, 2011 is when he passed away. He did a final concert for a friend that opened up a coffee shop after he'd been interviewed, and he was very fruitful in his ministry. Um, Age of 60, and I'm just going, who would have thought? But there was so much more he could have contributed. But see, the bottom line is, is, the main contribution he made was giving it up. Doing what he could do in the time that remained, because we don't know the when, we just know it shall happen. And I just found that to be so impressive. So Dan Peak, you can look him up. And uh, a fascinating man who exchanged his worldly treasures for kingdom treasures. And what a difference. And his, his uh, guys, they're all older now. They're in their probably mid-70s. Um, they scratch their chins. And, and when they get asked about Dan, they go, yeah, Dan was quite a character. He just gave it all up. He just basically packed it in, said, I'm quitting. I'm leaving. He just did a Jesus thing on us. Well, how are you guys with that? I don't know. Do we have anything that we can do about it? I mean, it was just a fascinating interview. And that's because he discovered that the treasures that he possessed had trouble that followed him. And he said, Lord, it doesn't satisfy me. The troubles are following, but the joy isn't here. And that's just, we just never know, never know. And so better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. There you go. Anger management is as simple as this verse. When it gets stirred up, that means there's wrath in you. The propensity to be a judge and to convict someone and to let them have it. So we've all been there. And most of that junk with my life happened in my junior high years where you had to prove who you were and what you could do if... Somebody wanted to pick on you. I mean, (laughs) crazy. Our school system teaches us how to be rebels and fighters (laughs) and at times disrespectors. But at any rate, this says that a wrathful man is one who stirs up strife. So if there's a strife and there can be an individual that's cited for it, that individual is filled with wrath. That means they don't have the peace of God in them. That's an important principle. Wrathful people do not have the Spirit of God either abiding in them or having control of them. Some, in the newness of their faith, do still have wrestlings with anger, temperaments. But this is telling us that wrath is one of those things that is a means by which you can make an assessment. If he's stirring up strife, he's a wrathful man. And if he's a wrathful man... Then it means very likely he does not have the peace of God abiding on him, but rather the wrath of God. He who is slow to anger allays contention. And so the discipline is slow it down. Slow it down. Because it's going to have on the reciprocal side of that contention being subdued. Not by this, but by the fact that you're taking control of yourself, and God will then take control. Of the other part of it. The way of the lazy man. Is like a hedge of thorns. But the way of the upright. Is a highway. And so that probably means. Is that. They are. Easily able to. Inflict wounds. And it's not necessarily. Associated with their temperament. It's associated with their industry. They've got nothing better to do. Except to poke at, prod, wound individuals who have a lot of things that are better to be done. And so this is commending that the way of the upright is a highway. For this individual, it's a bramble hedge. It's a blackberry vine. Whatever you can look at that says, man, you're going to get torn up with that kind of attitude or life, the way of the highway is for that individual that is upright. Just upright. It means that they have a standing with God and they are, in a sense, rather than cast down, their foot's on the rock. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. That's an interesting contrast. But I do believe that right now, that saying that, a mother has a place deeply in God's heart that is to have a manifestation of great respect and honor. And so moms are both worthy of it, and it is essential that kids are raised to understand that. A wise son makes a father glad. Sometimes there can be biases in the home, it happens. The Bible's replete with biases of fathers and mothers towards their sons and daughters. And this is just a balance right now on that. But it is, in my opinion, one that is corrective as it is bearing up the um, essential expectation that sons and daughters are those who um, honor their mother. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. There's again the word being used there that indicates how we ought to walk. Ephesians will tell us circumspectly, that means anticipating our behavior as being worthy to be noted. And we are also sensitive in where we are and what we're doing, how people see us. I like those things as well. Destitute of discernment. We've made entertainment um, actually boasting in this kind of activity. I still remember this program. I didn't watch it frequently. I just remember it It came out through the MTV uh, channel. And I believe it described an animal, (laughs) a donkey, the other version of the donkey. In King James, it's there right in front of your face. But the whole thing was stupidity on steroids. Stunts and terrible things that this guy and his you know, friends would do for the camera. They were st- stupid. He made a living off of almost killing himself. And trying to actually press other people to do the same thing. Well, we've kind of got that going on with TikTok nowadays. There are people doing things, they are being persuaded by those who have no discernment. They're destitute of discernment. They've got an audience and they're telling the audience to do things that are actually very foolish, very despicable, very destitute of discernment. Without counsel, verse 22, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. One of the things that I I find is important about this is that it certainly has the suggestion of spiritual counsel that comes from the house of the Lord, from the brotherhood, from sisters that are anchored in the word. But the other thing is too, which I think is preceding this, is the counsel that we receive from the men that have been sanctioned by God, anointed by him to pen the scriptures that we read. We have counselors in every book of the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit himself illuminating the passages of scripture that we read. Most of us know what it's like when we're tracking along with either a teaching or something that we're hearing with regard to passages that are being read. And our heart gets stirred there's something about it that we go, what was that? Where, was where were you at? And what our heart is telling us is, that's a word for me. And that can happen when I'm teaching. All of a sudden, we're, where were you at? And sometimes I can say, I don't know. Well, this is where I was teaching from, but I, what, I'm not sure what it is that you say I said that the Lord said that's your word. And that happened with me too. And sitting before teachings, pastors would teach and in their teaching a word was given and I'd say, that's for me. And so, as we look at this, that's why our midweek teachings and our Sunday teachings and our opportunities at home to be praying and reading, wherever that may be, our walks with God, wherever that may be, the reason being is that There's a multitude of counsel that comes. The history and the prophecy that's found in Isaiah is a huge comfort to us when we doubt, is he coming back? And you can, and I always tell you this, the fact of the matter is, is what is revealed in Isaiah was 700 years in advance of what Jesus fulfilled in his coming If that proves to be true and nothing else does, it is sufficient to say, and if that indeed did happen and it is irrefutable as evidence, then there's nothing I need to worry about with what he also will do in my life. He'll show up on time. He will be there for me. He's going to reveal himself. In my situation, I'm going to be blessed because... He's the one that authorizes my test. Therefore, I submit, I'm going to be blessed. If it was good enough in Isaiah to the day that he was born in Bethlehem, it's good enough for me right now And what is being born in my heart, the reality that he's faithful, true. I never have to doubt him. And so then as it moves from that, it says in verse 23, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken induces in due season, how good it is. So again, these are back to back and, you know, hopefully tonight you'll be able to leave going, that was a good word. That's why when I, usually when there's somebody teaching in my place or if I go someplace and it's being taught, I will say something to the effect of good word. The reason I do that is because I want the Lord to know that I value the word. And I also want that person that shared the word, I value them. I have had many of you that will take the time to say something as you're leaving or text me something. It's not just flattery. The Lord is confirming something in you, but he's also edifying something in me. And so I'm realizing that in our spiritual lives, it's important to place in a value on the word that's being taught or the work that you're seeing He's doing through you. I have no problem, and I do laugh at times when I give a compliment to say, Oh, don't steal my blessings. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> God's not an Indian giver. I can't steal your blessings but I'm acknowledging to you that you are a blessing. And so however you may have challenges with that, I can't steal a blessing. You are a blessing. So I think it's important to tell people that. I think that it's important to say, God bless you. If this church did one, in my opinion, one life-turning thing, if you said, but I'm not a theologian, or I don't do practical works, just do that with your mouth, with your phone, say, God bless you this day. Jesus bless you. That was the one that that got me, though. That was the one that got me as a teacher when I had a couple of parents say, Jesus bless you, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Because the Lord was doing a work in my life that I was so slow to respond to. And so he just sent a barrage of parents that would just bless me back into the Lord's work. I think it's the most powerful thing that I've ever had happen to me. That's why I think it's a teaching moment. And so it moves into, we're just going to finish a couple more verses and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this over right now. But the idea here is a word spoken in due season. How good it is! I hope that Sunday it was a word that was good and it's seasoned for you. Because I have heard some people say that. At times, I think that Rivers does a better articulation of what it, it took me forty minutes to say. He compresses it and just, and I go, "I wish I would have said that." <laughs> <laughs> But he's always one, though, that will give a, an assurance, a comfort in what it is that I've done. At any rate, uh, we want to do that. How good it is. You know, when you leave here, how good it is. Lord, how good it is that I came, that you delivered me here, that you saw me through the perils that were awaiting possibly me there. Lord, the rains came and they've had an effect and I'm the one that it's affecting. Lord, thank you for the rains that fill up the lakes for those who love to sail in boats and the surfers. like. Lord, it's causing a dilemma in me, but how good it is that right now, I don't need an ark. I just need your strong hand. The way of life wanes upward for the wise that he may turn away from hell below. And this is simply saying trajectory. There is a place called hell, but my intent, God would say, is that life winds upwards. His desire is to change the mind and to change the perspective of, of an individual in which they are heavenly minded while they're laboring for a short season in their earthly tenure. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Again, the interjection right now, widow, where's that coming from? Well, there are widowed women and it is for them a perilous time. It's a time in which part of the strength of their life is gone in what we would say the earthly realm. But it does say in this, there's a strength that I give in the heavenly realm. And it's very interesting because the Lord's saying, I establish the boundary of the widow. That's a promise. I'm the one that gives what no man can give. And I establish it, which no one can take away. I just think that's cool. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. Contrast again. Pleasant words, God loves pleasantries. The proper British pleasantries. It's something that indicates pureness. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. So one of the things that helps us avoid greediness is that we are not so easily persuaded by what we can get out of something. We're just givers. I choose to be a giver rather than what I can get out of something. Therefore, my hands are free. They're released. I have a liberty in that. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. There's a healthy reservation on what your answer will be. And I do believe that sometimes it's a great discipline to say, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. Come on, can't I get an answer? Yes, after I pray. When's that going to be? Because you're one of those guys that prays a long time. Yes, I do. I'll get back to you. (laughs) And sometimes I think that that's exactly what the Lord does show, is that patient prayer that may delay the answer is the right thing for the person that wants the immediacy of confirmation. You can't go wrong if you say I'm going to pray about it. But in the meantime, I will pray with you concerning it. That's a good thing to say. I don't have an answer for you now. I'm going to pray about it, but I will pray for you now concerning it. And that's what I think we all should be doing. When people come up and they share, before we part from one another, let me pray for you on what it is I heard. Let me ask the Lord to bless you and what you're going through. We can all do that. You know, if you guys did that, as the majority, I would be able to stand by the doorway so bored that I'd probably go next door to get a puppy just to entertain me because all the ministry would be happening here. So I like that. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So this is another one, these back to back, just affirming scriptures. He hears the prayers of the righteous. And your righteousness is a standing you have because of your relationship with God through his son. He hears you. He doesn't have cotton balls in his ears. He's not distracted. Keep those things that are dear to you before him. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and a good report makes makes the bones healthy. So give the good report. Let God hear your report card. Let him hear a good word about how he's doing in your life because it makes your bones healthy. The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. And that means that sometimes the Lord permits the audible shellackings, the put-downs, the hardships, that you might prove yourself in that time as one subject to God who's greater than perhaps that negative situation is. Here's the rebukes of life. In other words, the things that seemingly are coming against you. But you're going to hear it. And you're going to prevail through it. You'll abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. I'm getting rebuked. I'm going to heed it. That means I'll take it in. That's one of the biggest disciplines. Because what we want to do is defend ourselves and there's nothing wrong with defense but if it becomes the priority in every situation then you're going to become prideful the lord actually teaches us that there are circumstances in which pride is to be quenched done away with and usually it's attention by what it is somebody saying to you or presuming about you And you just have to be one that says, ah, but the Lord doesn't think that way about me. So why do I have to fight? How about just nodding my head? Mm -hmm. See, Or thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'm not saying I'm the best at it. What I am saying is that it's a principle that's important for all of us. Listening is so huge. And the problem at times with being a teacher is that our mouth is used to just going. And you guys, yeah, I know, you said you're going to stop three verses back. Verse 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. That packages it all up. That is a central verse concluding this proverb on the utterance that comes from our mouth. And I love that one. Notable is that verse, that placement of it. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility, it's just a season.